Well, I think it would be safe to say that uh, there are times in the life of every true believer, even though you're faithfully following the Lord's commands, even though you've gone where he's told you to go, you're doing the best you know how to do what he's commanded you to do, there will still be times in your life when things go from bad to worse. I'm not talking about living in rebellion. I'm talking about, boy, your heart is focused on him and you want to live for him. There will be times in those seasons where your life will fall apart. And I want you to tuck that away for somewhere in the future. Many years ago, God had been dealing with my heart about leaving the business world and submitting to a call to preach. And I ran from that for a long time because my dad was a missionary and a preacher and church planter, and it just scared the life out of me, frankly. And I didn't feel worthy. I, well, just a whole lot of reasons, but I, I ran from it for a long time. But Sandy, Sandy can attest to this, that when I did submit to that call, we were not met with ticker tape parades or pats on the back, or financial windfall, or perfect health. As a matter of fact, that step of obedience was followed up with tremendous financial hardships, with trials and battle and opposition of every imaginable kind that went on for months and months and months and months. Despite what you hear from pulpits across America, despite what you may read in the best-selling Christian books, obeying God and following where he leads will not give you your best life now. It won't. Our home is not here. We were never called to have our best life here. Despite what you may hear, despite what you may read, Faithfully obeying God and following his call will not guarantee perfect health. It will not guarantee prosperity and favor with everyone in your life. And it will not miraculously give you the best parking place at the mall at Christmas. And I can show you the book and the page number where a pastor said God will do that for you. It's utter nonsense. Now we see a tremendous example of this, of what I'm talking about, in the life of a man named Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 17. Just to recap quickly, last time uh, we were together, we left off this series through the Bible in 1 Kings 14, where Jeroboam was the, uh, the king over Israel in the north, and Rehoboam, Solomon's son, was king over Judah in the south. Remember I brought you that great map last time where I did this, and hope you all <laughs> drew pictures of that. And so the, the Bible tells us that those two kings, Jeroboam and uh, Rehoboam, it says this, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and provoked him to jealousy with the sins that they committed more than all that their fathers had done. How's that for a tombstone? And so when you get to chapter 15 and 16, you're naturally hoping that the sun is going to rise and shine and it's going to be a much better picture. But let me uh, sum up chapters 15 and 16 for you very quickly. Here's what those two chapters contain. So-and-so lived so many years and reigned as king. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he died. And his son reigned as king, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he died. 
and his son reigned as king, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he died. I just gave you chapters 15 and 16. It's an abysmal picture of hundreds of years of history that take place in Israel and Judah, where God's people are so lost that they just allow evil men to rule over them. And the country is, uh, the, the nation is in a shambles, spiritually speaking. There were a few good kings sprinkled in there, but very, very few. None in the north, a few in, in the south. Or I may have that backwards. Sorry, I'll have to check that later. See, listen, here, here's why that happens. And we've seen this pattern. We saw it in Judges, that cycle over and over again. Here's why that happens. Because without obedience to God's commands, man's best efforts to rule will always lead to failure and misery. I don't care how many degrees the guy has after his name or the gal. I don't care how qualified they are, popular they are. Leadership without God's rule leads to devastation. Now, a lot of those kings that are named in chapter 15 and 16, you know, their names have long since been forgotten in the passage of time. But now, as we come to the end of chapter 16, I think I told you to go to 17, but turn back quickly to the end of chapter 16. I want to pick this up because it sets the stage for what's about to happen. So at the end of 16, we read about a king whose name we still remember, and uh, not for good reasons. 1 Kings 16, 29 says this, In the 38th year of Asa, the king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Now, this is just a continuation of what I told you. Verse 30, Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. 31, And as if that were not enough for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, he even married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. And he then proceeded to serve and worship Baal. And he set up an altar for Baal at the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah, or it's a wooden image or a grove, a place to worship, a thing to worship. Verse 33, and Ahab made an Asherah. He did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Like just when you think people can't get any worse, they surprise you and go, yeah, we can. We can get a whole lot more evil than this. And so for the next six chapters, this man Ahab dominates the story, along with a well-known prophet named Elijah, who perhaps uh, is one of the, the greatest prophets. I say that from a simply human standpoint, because James tells us that he was not great at all. He was a man of the same passions and problems that we have. But God did some remarkable things through him. And so we pick up with that now in chapter 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah, the Tishbite, that's not like a mosquito bite. It's a different, totally different thing. Elijah, the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now, unlike many of the leaders we've seen before, who we saw this long buildup before they actually went and did what God told them to do. I mean, uh, Moses, there's an entire chapter devoted to Moses arguing with God about why he doesn't want to go and stand before Pharaoh. And it would have been two chapters if it had been me, 
maybe five, you know. But here with Elijah, he, he just bursts onto the pages of Scripture. We know nothing about him prior to this. We have no lead-in. We have no background. And the first thing we see him doing, he's standing face-to-face with the most wicked king who had ever lived. He's calling down God's judgment on that king. Hey, nobody dared to go stand before a king, especially Ahab, and say anything critical or bad about him. And so what Elijah has just done is, um, I think the technical term is, it's crazy. Uh, I I think that's the Hebrew interpretation. Totally crazy. Now just picture this. This prophet, dressed in these weird clothes, stands out from everybody. He comes before the king, not just because he woke up and you know, said, yeah, I think I'll go mess with the king today. God sent him. And we see this throughout the following pages. God sent him to Ahab. Now, I don't know if he was shaking in his shoes. I don't know. It doesn't seem to be. But the pattern that we'll see in Elijah's life is that he obeyed God regardless of how crazy it sounded. He obeyed God. He didn't argue. He didn't fight. We'll see in a couple of weeks. He has a Boy, he, has a, he really hits the wall and has a breakdown. But man, this guy obeyed God. God could have said, stand in the corner and wiggle your ears for an hour. And he would have said, yes, sir, I'm on it. He obeyed God, no matter how foolish it sounded. So God sends Elijah to go and tell Ahab that because of all the evil he's done, there's going to be a drought in the land that lasts for years and will only stop at his word, at God's word through Elijah. So he, he drops this bomb on Ahab, and uh, a drought in that part of the world was devastating. It was deadly. There was nothing uh, good about it at all. But let's not miss now how powerfully Elijah worded this. His opening words tell us a lot about his faith. Look at verse 1 again. I highlighted this for you. Now Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives... Before whom I stand, these things are about to happen. See, he isn't going in his own boldness. He says, my God lives, and he's going to do what he said, and you, sir, are about to find out that that's true. What a remarkable place to begin a call of God with certainty that God has sent you, and he's going to do what he said he's going to do. There seems to be no doubt, no wavering at all in Elijah. He says, in fact, Ahab, I'm not even standing before you, pal. I'm actually standing before God, just carrying out his will. You just happen to be the guy in the way right now. This is a remarkable statement of boldness and faith. This isn't about you, Ahab. I'm not standing trembling before you. No, I I stand before my God, carrying out his work. Well, after Elijah delivers this thunderous uh, prophecy you would expect and maybe hope that there would be some dramatic display of God's power, or maybe you'd hope that Ahab would fall to his knees in repentance. But you know what? Life rarely works that way, and God rarely works that way. We pick up in verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. Now, let me just translate that into good old plain English for you. What God is saying to Elijah is, Elijah, run away and hide. That's what he's saying. Doesn't seem like a great plan so far. But you know, we saw in Ecclesiastes a while back, 
there is a time for everything, which means that there are times when it's not the right time for something. There are times when God will call us to boldly take a stand for him. There are other times when God may tell us to run and hide because he needs us away. He needs that quiet moment with us. And so verse 4 says, God continues, and it will be that you shall drink from the book, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. Now, can we just not be super spiritual in this moment? Can we just be real honest with what we've just read and say again, this is nuts. This is crazy. What we're hearing right here is crazy. I mean, if it was me, I'm sure I love clarity on things. I'm sure I would have said, Lord, I'm sorry. I didn't quite catch that last part. You say you want me to run into the wilderness and hide by a stream, and then what was it again? Ravens? Ravens are going to feed me. Okay, well, let's get on with that. I mean, you can maybe see a parrot bringing food to him. You know, Elijah, want a cracker? That kind of thing. <laughs> that, would, that would make sense almost. But ravens, ravens are not nice birds. They're big birds. They're very mean-spirited. They're, they're scavengers. They're nasty nasty birds. Uh, And I don't know if Elijah kind of took the food from them like, you know, like that, washed it in the stream. I don't know. And I have to wonder about this. I don't want to spend time on this, but I have to wonder if this is one of those little moments where God is subtly displaying his power over every creature in the world, good and the bad. That's an interesting study sometimes. Go through the Bible and see all the creatures that God commanded to do something. There's a ton of them. Worms, lions, fish, donkeys, bears. So Elijah gets this crazy command from God. And what does he do? Verses 5 and 6. Watch this. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. Got to be kidding. For he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. So once again, we see someone stepping out by faith. And what's the very next thing we see? We see God stepping in and doing exactly what he said he would do. But Elijah never would have known that if he hadn't stepped out by faith. He would have always wondered, huh, If I obeyed God back then, I wonder what I would have seen. Would I have starved out there or would God have taken care of me? God comes through and he does exactly what he said he would do, but not just in, he doesn't just sort of barely dish out to Elijah what he needs. Because you see, while the, the pagans are trusting in their gods to get them through this drought and they're starving, Elijah is trusting in his God to get him through this drought, and he's feasting like a king. Meat, morning and night, very uncommon in those days. Very uncommon, except for the wealthy. Elijah is out there trusting in his God, and he's eating like a king. Why? Because he was somebody special? No, no, no. Simply because he trusted in the word of the Lord. And God is good. He's good to those who trust in him. And yet... I want us to see, and we, we must not miss this, that even in the midst of his obedience to God, he still had problems to deal with. Verse seven, and it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. 
Now, let's not miss what is happening here. I want you to hear this. Elijah is suffering the consequences of his own obedience. That might not make sense right now, but maybe later it will. He's suffering the consequences of his own obedience. He's the one who obeyed God and prophesied this drought. And now he's suffering from the very thing that God has brought. You see, God protects us, he keeps us, he he cares for us, all these things. But folks, we're living in a messed up, broken, sinful, evil, corrupt world. And it is going to affect us in a thousand different ways. Through death and heartache and abandonment and on and on and on. We've seen now God's miraculous provision for Elijah. God has sustained him through this drought all this time in such an odd way by giving him the meat and giving him the water from the brook to keep him alive. But now, folks, the provision runs out. Provision runs out. You'll hear a lot of preaching today that if you obey the Lord and trust in him, it'll be a year of jubilee for you. Nonsense. That's cherry-picking the Bible, folks. That's what that's doing. If you obey God, boy, he's going to rain down abundance in your life. You send me a $1,000 check, God will give you 10 times back. Well, he might. He might. Sometimes he does. He blesses our socks off sometimes in ways that leave us just dumbfounded. But you see, that view of things is really man's definition of blessing. I've had to wrestle with this my entire adult life. I've had to wrestle with it in my relationship with God. I've had to wrestle with it in my relationship with Sandy, my kids, others, people here. Because what I receive from people, I may not see as the blessing that I wanted. Well, they're not loving me or treating me the way I feel I should be loved and treated. But you see, I'm measuring it with the wrong ruler. And every time I have to take myself back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and read that whole thing and go, man, I'm never going to get this. I am never going to get this. It's not about God giving us what we think we deserve. Because, folks, what we deserve is H-E-L-L. That's what we deserve. And by doing that, by living that way, I'm telling you, we miss so many of the blessings of God day to day. There are a thousand ways every day, if we just open our eyes, that we will see the goodness and the blessing of God. Here's one example of how God blesses those who trust in him. Jeremiah 17, 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. And we go, okay, blessed. There it is. If I trust in the Lord, I'm going to be blessed and my life will be trouble-free, right? Well, let's read the next verse. And see how God loves to bless those who trust in him. Verse 8, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor cease to produce fruit. That's one of the ways God blesses us, but we miss that so often. It's like, I've got clothes to wear, I've got food to eat, I've got a place to live, I've got a car to drive, I've got a job, I've got some people who love me. God, why aren't you blessing me? We just miss it. And I do, I do. I'm I'm still training myself every day. Phil, open your eyes. That truck that just flew by you through that red light, God held you back because he's not done with you. When he's done with you, bring it on, okay? 
but not yet. God, God is blessing you. Fill the, the family you have, the food you have, the air that you have to breathe, the church family that you have. He's blessing you. No, I don't have that Ferrari yet. Doggone it. I don't. I keep trying the reverse thing. You know, God, I don't ever want to live in Hawaii and drive a Ferrari. And I'm like, maybe. But you know, that's my view of things. And God says, Phil, open your eyes, buddy. You are blessed beyond measure. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere does God promise to take away all your earthly problems if you obey him. As a matter of fact, he said, it is through much tribulation that you must enter the kingdom of heaven. He said, in this world, you will have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And on and on. Here's what he has promised. He's promised to sustain you in the hard times. He's promised to guide you when you're lost. He's promised to provide for you when you run out of resources or wisdom or whatever it is in the midst of those problems. He's promised to do that. And he's even promised more than that. He's promised to nourish you. He's promised to strengthen you when everything around you is wilting and dying and falling apart. And that's exactly what God did for Elijah. He didn't remove the problems. Elijah still felt the sting of the problems. But God sustained him and nourished him and continued to guide him. See, listen, God had provided this, this brook, this little stream, all this time for Elijah, but then the stream dried up. And I want you to hear this. Sometimes, sometimes God has to make things uncomfortable for us where we are today so that we'll get up and go do what he wants us to do tomorrow. You read sometime, go anywhere and read about how the mama eagle stirs her nest. The Bible talks about it. She puts, when she builds the nest, she puts thorns all in the bottom and then covers it with strips of lamb's wool and leaves and grass and makes it nice and soft. And when her babies are old enough to fly, to begin to fly, you can see videos of this high up in the mountains, fur flying out of that nest. She's picking it out and throwing it out, and those babies are going, whoo, oh, hey, hey, this is not good. And the only safe place for them is to stand around the rim of the nest. And that's when mama goes, pushes one off, and they just fall. And she dives down, and she catches them on her wings and takes them back up until they learn to fly. Sometimes, sometimes the only way God can get our stupid selves to move and do what he wants us to do is to make us really uncomfortable where we are. Don't be too quick to shake your fist at God when your life is falling apart. It may just be the best thing that ever happened to you. Often in our life, the only way God can get our attention is when the brook dries up. Do you understand? When the brook dries up. We're so quick to, you know, to be willing to, to just settle somewhere in life just because it's familiar and it's safe and there's no threats and there's no risks, even though that's not ultimately the place that God has for us. Elijah could have said, you know, Lord, I, I know uh, that Ahab still wants to kill me. One of the ravens tipped me off. He, 
He's still looking for me all this time later. So, you know, I just think if you could fix these accommodations up, get the plumbing working again, I'd just be happy to stay here. That'd, that'd suit me just fine. I'm comfortable here. Let's, let's just stay. But he didn't do that. He knew he couldn't stay where he was and go where God wanted him to be at the same time. Is that simple enough for us? You can't stay where you are and go where God wants you to be at the same time. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about a geographical move. I'm talking about something in your heart that you're holding on to. That's why Jesus said again and again and again, you want to follow me? It's going to hurt. You're going to have to let go of some stuff, and it's going to hurt. And he looked up. The Bible says crowds turned away and left. Nope, not for us. I want the brook. I want the endless supply of food that you give us, Jesus. That's what I want. The hard stuff, nah, not for me. And so what did Elijah do? He didn't argue. He didn't debate. He didn't negotiate. Verse 8 and 9. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. And once again, I just have to pause and say, what now? You're gonna, so you're going to provide a widow in the middle of a drought to provide for my needs. You know, um, maybe, maybe Elijah, maybe I would have been thinking, you know, Lord, I'd, I'd prefer a five-star hotel with nice soft beds and ocean view and full buffet breakfast. If you could provide that, that would be great because that's my idea of God providing for me. And it's so skewed. But what do we see Elijah doing again? Verse 10, so he arose and went to Zarephath. It's another green highlight in your Bible, folks. Green means go. Every time you see somebody obeying God, color it in green. One day you'll flip through your Bible. It'll come to life for you. Throughout the Bible so far, I mean, we've seen example after example of people stepping out and following God in obedience. And we've never yet seen God let anyone down. Not one. This is not just ancient, dusty uh, history from the Bible. This has happened all through the Bible. It's happened all through history. It's happening today. It's happened in my own family. Many years ago, many, many years ago, a very young couple with three small children living in Tennessee, sort of barely getting by, like most young couples, and God put a call on their heart to leave everything and go to Australia as missionaries without knowing anybody there, without knowing what the next step would be. They sold everything. They boarded a plane, one of those old rickety planes back then, flew over the ocean, landed in Australia, got off the plane and said, all right, Lord, what now? And God led them to somebody who led them to somebody who opened a door, who provided a need, and then I came along a couple of years later and was born there. Those were my parents. And then when I was eight, God said, the brook's dried up here. Time to go to Africa. And we boarded a boat and sailed for, what was it, 16 days, I think, across the ocean to South Africa. My dad flew ahead by plane, had no idea really what God wanted. Walked into a store to buy something, struck up a conversation with the man, the man led him to a man who led him to a man who led him to a man, and it just worked. It was all by faith. Crazy, crazy 
faith. And I want to tell you, listen, God moves through the lives of those who obey him, regardless of how crazy the call sounds. You want to play it safe your whole Christian life? You're certainly free to do that. But you will miss out on seeing what God can do in the moments where you can't do for yourself. So you might be thinking, well, okay, what does that obedience look like? I mean, how do, how do we live that out? Well, let me just begin here. Is there anything in God's word that he has already brought to your attention that you are not currently obeying? Start there. As someone once said, if you can't be faithful where you are, you won't be faithful where you ain't. It's the truth. I've seen so many people over the years come to my dad or whatever and say, oh, God's called us to, you know, Indonesia or Bangladesh or whatever as missionaries. My dad's like, hmm, hmm, I don't know, man. You won't even help clean the bathrooms here at the church building. You won't even help mow the lawn around here. You won't even serve in a ministry. Buddy, you won't won't last three weeks overseas. You see, because our, our current faithfulness provides the stepping stones for our future obedience. I've told you before, God will never lead you past your point of present disobedience. He won't do it. It's the parable of the talents. God entrusts you with something today, and then he steps back and says, I'm going to come back and check on you and see how you're doing. If you're stewarding this faithfully, and by the way, that's not just about money, it's about life. And if he comes back and sees, well, we've buried it, we've squandered it, we're just playing it safe, God says, well, there you stay. You're going to stay there until you learn this. I would encourage you, if there's a place in your life where God's word has, you know, when, when you listen to preaching, when you read the Bible at home, when you listen to, uh, to, to worship, or we're worshiping together here, and God pricks your heart about something, Do you desire to pursue him in that area, or do you run from it? Start with the small things. Start with the small things. Verse 10, we wind this down. So what did Elijah do? He arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow was gathering sticks. Well, of course she was, because God said that's what was going to happen. And he called to her and said, please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. It's a bold thing to ask in the middle of a drought, at the end of a drought, when it was still going on after years. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, oh, by the way, please bring me a morsel or a small bite of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a barrel and a little oil in a jar. And see, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. This widow is literally at the point of her last meal. She's at the point of starvation. Verse 13, And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first, and bring it to me, and afterward Make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the barrel of flour will not be used up, nor will the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. Now we can deduce from this, we can decipher from this very easily that 
the reason this widow has no more food is because of the drought. It's killed all the crops, it's dried up all the water, and things had gotten dire in the land. And why was all that happening? It was happening because of Elijah, the very man who was now challenging this poor woman to trust God beyond her breaking point. It's because he obeyed God that this problem was happening. But it was also because he obeyed God that now this woman had a chance to stretch her faith. And the, the boldness of Elijah here is, is kind of staggering. He's almost saying, hey, never mind, never mind the fact that you're about to die and this is your last meal. Let's not talk about that. Don't you worry about that. First, you go get me some water, make me a cake with a candle on it maybe, and bring it back to me first. First. And then when you do that, God will step in and provide your needs beyond measure. And once again, we see somebody faced with a completely illogical command from God. But folks, listen to me. This is how God builds your faith with things like this right here. If God only ever asked you to do what you could do, to give what you could give, to go where it was easy to go, then why would we even need him? We could live life on our own. Listen, faith only grows when it is stretched. When's the last time you stretched your faith? And I ask myself that too. When's the last time? So this poor, desperate widow, she's faced with a choice that could literally mean life or death to her. But what do we see her do? Verses 15 and 16. And she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and her household ate for many days. I thought it was her last meal. Oh, but God's involved now. Verse 16. The barrel of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry. According to the word of the Lord which he spoke by Elijah. Don't miss that phrase. The lessons here are so many, but I'm out of time. Oh, no, that's right. I get an extra five minutes on the end of this because I babbled up front. I'll let you explore the, the many lessons in what we've just read on your own, but I think two of the obvious truths are when we give to God first, when we seek his kingdom first, he has promised Come right in behind that and meet our needs. He's promised. But also, I think it's important to note that Elijah, you know, let's not take this wrong. He wasn't running around town taking crazy risks and then expecting God to show up and bail him out. That's not faith. That's foolishness. That's why I said don't miss that last phrase. Everything Elijah had done so far is in that phrase. He did it according to the word of the Lord. Be very careful as we live our lives. Let's not just go and do things and say, God, why did you let that happen? God says, you weren't listening to me. You weren't following me. I never asked you to do that. Make sure we live our lives according to the word of the Lord. Oh, there's so much there. Elijah was acting strictly upon what God had told him to do. And when he did that, the Lord followed through and did what he promised to do. So this widow steps out by faith and she got to see the incredible power of God and, and as we wrap this up, you know, we think, well, this is kind of a nice place in, in this story because everything has really kind of worked out. It's, it's reached a nice, happy place. Elijah had escaped Ahab. God had miraculously fed him. 
Um, the widow stepped out by faith and obeyed God, and God had miraculously provided for her. So surely it's smooth sailing from here. Surely. Well, not at all. Verses 17 to 24, the widow's son dies. Uh-oh. She just obeyed God. Hmm. Her son dies. She gets angry at Elijah. She blames him for bringing this on her. And you can read the story there or when you have time. Elijah takes the boy upstairs, lays him on the bed, and cries out to God. Verse 22 says, And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul, or the life of the child, came back to him, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. What a moment, huh? And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, watch this, Now by this I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. Let me tell you what's happening here. The resurrection of her only son from the dead validated the truth of God's word to her through Elijah. I've said to you, the Old Testament points to the new again and again and again. Every time God raised someone from the dead in the Bible, he was displaying his power over life and death But the ultimate display that would come when all of these things happened was pointing ahead to the cross and the empty tomb. Because it is in the resurrection of God's only son from the dead that we see the validation of the truth of his word. That's why Paul said the death and burial and resurrection are central to everything. It all is built on that, stands on that. And all these events here highlight one main truth. The God of heaven is mightier than all of the useless gods of man. All those things you and I trust in, they're useless. They cannot save you. Can I just tell you something? Your best friends. You you better not be relying on your best friends to get you through when the storms come. Because many of them will abandon you. The things of this world... The gods of this world are useless. And this is what God is displaying here. And boy, we'll see this next week in a big way. In chapter 18 with that massive standoff between Elijah and the 450 prophets, Baal. You see the the droughts of life, hardship, pain, sorrow, suffering, and death. They're going to visit us all. So I ask you this morning as we close, what or who are you trusting in to get you through those storms when they come? And they will come. What are you trusting in? You trusting in your bank account? You trusting in your secure job? Trusting in your excellent health? Your impressive education? Your strong relationships that nobody could ever break? The Bible says, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his arm. The Bible said, it's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. The Bible says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. What about you? Are you able to say with certainty, along with the hymn writer, my hope is built on nothing less? than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare, dare not trust the sweetest frame 
but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. May God grant to each of us the grace that we need to put our trust in him, no matter what comes. Let's pray. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart.